I'm going to be talking about is Jesus represented by the uh, serpent that was lifted up on a pole in the wilderness when Israel were going to the wilderness. They got bitten by snakes and they were all going to die, started dying. And then God said, take a brass serpent, put it on a pole and lift it up. Everybody looked at it, got saved. And Jesus says in the New Testament, as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, even so shall I be lifted up, so that whoever looks at me, whoever believes in me, will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's what I want to talk about. Right, so let's read the uh, story. <laughs> the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and there they were living a dumb life, building pyramids, slaving away for somebody else. And they wanted a way out. They weren't very righteous, they were worshipping idols and all that stuff. But they wanted a way out. And so God led them out of Egypt to the Red Sea. And then he opens the Red Sea, and they go through the Red Sea. There's water both sides of them, and there's a cloud on top of them. And Paul in the New Testament says that they were baptised in the cloud and in the sea. So there was water both sides of them, and a cloud is made up of water. Right? So they were, as it were, surrounded by water. And Paul says that was what we call a type. That was a symbol of baptism. So, the whole story is that Egypt is like the world. We were in Egypt. We wanted a way out. We weren't particularly righteous. But we wanted a way out. We didn't want to go away out of this world. And God saw that, and he led us to baptism. Went through the Red Sea, and then what happened? They were in the wilderness. They weren't in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. Straight away, they were in the wilderness. They had walked 40 years through the wilderness. And unfortunately with them, many of them wanted to go back to Egypt, back to the world. But if only they had kept on the track, they would have come to the land of Canaan, land of Israel, the promised land, which for us is like the kingdom of God, eternal life. So those of us who have been baptised, we are now in the wilderness, on our wilderness journey. And, as Paul says, everything that happened to Israel, in principle, happened to us. And so the whole thing becomes a message for us. So you read here, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, this is exactly what Joanne's been saying. I've dropped out of connection, but in the, in the wilderness, but I'm discouraged. Or, you know, Karen said to me, outside the pub, I haven't spoken, I, I said, you know, you're right, but no, I'm not right. She, like all of us, we're discouraged because of the way. When you see people drop dead as it were next to you, well, you are, right? So let's see what happens. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread and there's no water and our soul loathes, hates this light bread. Yahweh sent fiery smokes among the people and they bit the people and many people of Israel died. So, why? Why did you bring me here? Why? What game are you playing with me, God? That's how it was. Why? And they, God was angry at what they said because they said, you brought us out here just to kill us. God's not a psycho. God is love. And this is the question. Either God's a psycho, basically. He's a psycho. He's playing games. He does be nasty to you. Or God is good. And we see the evidence that God is good above all. In the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross, to give your only begotten Son to die for us now. God is good. It's just that we as little children don't quite get it all the time. 
So that, that's your choice. God is either full of love and wants to save you, or God's a psycho. God's not a But that's what they said. He's brought us out just to kill me. And you see the mentality. We have no bread and no water. And we hate this light bread. You see, God gave them manna every day. The contradiction there. We've not got any bread. Ah, well, we hate them. No, we have got bread, but we hate this bread. Yeah? So somebody's saying, I haven't got any money. Well, actually, you've got a couple of them put in your bank account. But what you mean is, I haven't got lots of money. So they're saying, we haven't got any bread. Oh, yeah, we hate this bread that God gives us. It's light bread. Now, God gave them the manna. And we're told that the manna was kind of like, I would say magic food, but it was um, miraculous, that if you ate the manna, it says you were full. They were given it every morning. They would prepare it, eat it, you could fill up. But they said, oh, this is light bread. It's a bit like if God gave us vegetables, bread, and uh, water every day, well, he's giving you food to eat, right? Oh, no, but I, I want... I want a Big Mac. Oh, but I want a pizza. I want, I want this. Oh, I want that. You can't say God's not giving you anything. So God's given us clothes. Oh, but I want, I want a 500 feet jacket. I, I want a 500 feet blazer or whatever. No, God's given you clothes. You don't need a 500 feet blazer or whatever it might be. You, know, you don't need a Gucci handbag. So I haven't got any clothes. I haven't got a Gucci handbag. Come on. Yeah. So, in this account of Israel in the wilderness, it's absolutely up to date with us. People tell me, I haven't got anything. But this is how we are. I've got no bread. In other words, I've not got as much food as I would like to have. God's given us the manna. He will give us what we need, physically and spiritually, every day. But they said, oh, this is light bread. No, no, no. So, oh, you've got Jesus. Oh, no, 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 all that stuff. You've got Jesus. You've got everything. Oh, it's light bread. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, I know all that stuff. But I still haven't got the car that I want. I've got the holidays that I want. I've got the clothes that I want. You've got Jesus. Yes, I've got Jesus. Yeah, all right, yeah. But, see? So, the mentality of Israel in the wilderness at this point is exactly where we're up to. And that's why Paul says everything that happened to them is us. Well, he's not going to like that attitude. You accuse him of being a psycho. So he sent fiery snakes among the people. God sent them. Don't think that God's a sort of kind old granddad up in the sky who gives you the nice things and the devil gives you the bad things. God's totally in control of your life. He sent these snakes. They bit the people. Now the serpent, the snake, is obviously a symbol of sin. We all get that, I think. Genesis, the serpent, the Garden of Eden, and so forth. So the people came to Moses. They've been bitten, and the, uh, the venom is coming up in their bloodstream. People are dying, and they say, We have sinned because we've spoken against Yahweh and against you. Who prayed to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us? Moses prayed for the people. Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery snake and set it on an ensign pole, and it shall happen that everyone who is bitten, when he looks to it, shall live. So Moses made a snake of grass and lifted it up on the ensign pole. 
And it happened, the little snake had bitten him there, and when he looked toward the snake of grass, he lived. Now, in the New Testament, this is all explained to us. And it says, in John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a pole. Plus, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Writing the next bits out of context, but I'll tell you why it isn't. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the, the light of their works of evil. We'll come to that in, in a minute. But people say, yes, we've sinned. Um, can you, and we're dying. They realise they've done wrong, that God is not a psycho, and you don't talk like that about God. That God is love, and yes, we are wrong. Moses, can you pray to God for us? And Moses says, yes, sure, I will. Now, God doesn't say then, okay, guys, Moses has prayed for you, all good. Uh, he does, Moses prays and God hears him. But after, he does, has to do something, they have to do something. He gets, makes a brass serpent, puts it on a pole, and says, you've got to look at this, and then you'll live. So, you see there how it's got to be personal, our response. It's no good like in, say, Catholicism or whatever, or Russian Orthodoxy particularly, ah, oh, whoops, I've sinned. Hey, priest, pray for me, priest. Oh yeah, give me some money, right, Russian Orthodox. Give me some money, I'll pay it back for you, good guy, I'll take it. You've got to do something. Yes, you can pray for someone, but <laughs> you've got to still do it. Imagine how it would be. Oh, Duncan, I've sinned. You've got to say a prayer for me. Oh, good. Right, what are you going to do? You've got to go out and do it again. Right? <coughs> it's, not, it's not enough that Moses prayed for them. He did something. He made this pole and, and this snake and said, you've got to look at that and then you'll live. So it's two things. We can pray for other people, but they've also got to respond. And without maybe our prayers, maybe they won't respond enough. There was a paralyzed man in the ministry of Jesus whose friends brought into the house where Jesus was and they unpacked the flat roof and let Jesus let the sick man down in the midst for Jesus to cure him and might remember the story. And it says that when Jesus saw the faith of the friends, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. When he saw the faith of the friends, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. In other words, yes, to some degree, our prayers for others can change their outcome. But by that, I don't mean that you just look at random blow walking down the street and you say, oh God, save that man. And he might not want to be saved. But I think that there are cases where someone does want to be saved, but they're weak. And they maybe get up to here where they need to get to, they need to get to here. We can pray for them and make up the gap. And I think that's what it was here with these people. And that is actually what it is with all of us. Pray for each other. Because we're all the same. You and I want to be saved. We're here because we believe it. But maybe I can only get up to here when I should get up to here. And maybe you only get up to here when you need to get there. But in that gap, we can make it up to each other. That's why I read this whole thing about prayer for each other. If it's 100% up to you, if you want to believe, then it's over to you. I can't help you. 
Well, in that case, there's no point in complying to each other. What's the point? Complying to each other if actually it's all up to you. Now, there is an element to which it is not just up to you. And you can change it. So, Moses does pray for them. And yet he's told, well, you've got to make a fiery serpent and put it on an inside pole and lift it up. And when someone's bitter and looks to it, he shall live. So Moses made the snake and lifted it up on the pole. And if the snake had bitten anyone, when he looked towards the snake of grass, he lived. And you know how Jesus interpreted that. That the snake lifted up on the pole was Jesus lifted up in crucifixion. So, the, this is why, although I've got nothing against wearing a cross, I do think that the word that's translated cross, it does mean a tree trunk. It means a pole. And Jesus would have been crucified, it seems to me, hands above his head like this. Not necessarily like this, but like that. Because it was a tree trunk. And this is all foreseen by how the serpent, was the snake, was lifted up on the pole. That's how it was. And whoever looked to that believed. That's how it was saved. Thanks, Barry. So, um, so, that's how Jesus interprets it. But it all seems a bit weird because the snake represented Jesus. Well, the snake's not a nice symbol, is it? It's a nice symbol. But he says, as the serpent was lifted up on the pole in the wilderness, even so I will be lifted up on the cross. So the serpent, the snake becomes a symbol of Jesus. What does that mean? I think what it means is that although he never sinned, don't get me wrong, Jesus never sinned. He was so identified with us sinful lot that he could be, he was symbolised here by a serpent, but a dead one. Because in him, sin was dead. He had human nature, he had all our tendencies, but he never gave in. So he overcame every aspect of sin, whatever it was. He was tempted, in essence, by it. But he, he never gave in. It was without sin. But he was represented by this snake, this dead snake, if you like. So they were bitten, and they could feel the, the venom coming into their bloodstream. We've all sinned, and the rose of sin is death. We've all been bitten, and we've got to die. And it's in our blood, it's in our bloodstream. You're going to live forever. Go and talk to a GP like my wife. Go and go live, no one's going to live forever, are they, darling? You're all going to die. Right, everyone's going to die, thank you. Scientifically, <laughs> medically, we've got it medically confirmed, you're all going to die. Because that's a GP. <laughs> yeah, that's just, just a GP's opinion anyway. We're all going to die. And you've got it in your bloodstream. And so they were told, you've got to look at this serpent on a pole, and whoever looks at it will live. 
Well, in all primitive societies, there's a fear of snakes. In the Middle East, in Africa, in Australia, sorry, I'm not saying Australia's primitive, but they are a little bit primitive. And they all got these ideas about what you do when, a, when you're bitten by a snake. Oh, you must do this, you must do that, you must do that. And I'm sure when they got bitten by the snakes, they'd have done all their rituals. It's not working. Now, I lived for two years in a small village in uh, Zambia and Malawi. And one of the things they said there, they're snakes. Right? If you get bitten by a snake, I was in this little house made of mud, and someone was bitten by a snake. Oh, so he's been bitten by a snake. And the guy said, watch it, I think it's over there. And they said, don't look, don't look, don't look. <laughs> because they believe that if you're bitten by a snake, and you look at the snake, you're definitely going to die. <laughs> now, I reckon, and I'll come through this, but I reckon it would have been similar here, in, in, in Israel, in those days. And Jesus says the opposite. Oh, sorry, Moses and Jesus say the opposite. You've been bitten by a snake, look at a snake, and you will live. So it was totally counter-intuitive, totally against what they naturally believe. If you're bitten by a snake, don't look at the snake or you really will die. You're bitten by snakes, look at a snake. This snake, this one snake, and you will live. So, we've all been bitten by sin. And we're going to die. And people say, no, if you go out jogging every day, if you take these supplements, if you do what your GP says, if you do this, that, and the other, you will live. Well, you won't live for very long. You're still going to die. And you might get scribbled by a, in a car crash. No matter how much you've been doing your exercising and all your whatever. In other words, we all try to fend off the evil day in our own strength, and you can't do it. And so they were told, if you're bitten by a snake, you've got to look at the serpent or the pole. Well, we're told in the Bible that when Israel left Egypt, there were 600,000 men, plus women and children. Well, I was never very good at math, but 600,000 men, plus women and children, means the whole group of them would have been probably 3 million. And they weren't living in high-rise blocks. They were living in tents. So three million people would have been a fairly big area. Three million people living in tents in massive area. So there's only one snake. Moses lifts up the snake on the pole and says, whoever looks at this will live. So whoever you were in this great big encampment, where is it? I've got to come to it. And there you were, with feeling the, the venom in your blood, seeing people dying of it. I've got to drag myself, crawl, walk, so that I can look there. You see how it's all... That's what I love about the Old Testament, that you get deeper insight. Really, you know, the New Testament says Jesus died on the cross. Period. Yeah, you did. But you see the background, and you see the whole thing. We've all been bitten, and we are going to die. We have sin. Waves of sin is death. Right. You've got to drag yourself. You've got to walk. You've just got to get yourself to a position where you see that snake, that serpent of the pole. And Jesus, of course, says, he interprets that and says, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross that whoever believes on me 
We're not perishable, we'll have eternal life. And, of course, what he means is that seeing is believing for us. In the parable, if you like. As they looked at the serpent on the pole, we look at Jesus on the cross and we believe. Now, in the lower place, Jesus alludes to this, and he says, I'm doing this so I'm living my life as I am and giving my life, so that whoever sees the Son of God will not perish but have eternal life. The Jewish mind, whoever sees the Son will not perish but have eternal life. Oh, that's the servant of the wilderness. Yeah, whoever saw that didn't perish. So, we look to him there, not simply looking physically, but believing, and we will not perish, but we will have eternal life. Then you think, alright, so we have eternal life, that's the promise, but we're all going to die. So how does that work out? You promised eternal life, but you're still going to die. Well, my, my take on that would be that, yes, we are going to die, but when Jesus returns, we will be resurrected. So effectively, death is like a sleep. The minute that you die, the next waking moment, Jesus is back and on, you know, for eternal life. And there's another take on that, but he says that we are going to have eternal life. I also take that to mean that now we can live the kind of life that we're going to live eternally. For example, Mark and I spent the last week dashing around Ukraine, baptising people, helping people, but frustrated by our own weakness, by humanity that we can't get as quickly as we want from here to there because the bridge is blown up or because it's just too far. Um, and we need to sleep and we are weak. But that is in essence how we will eternally live. If you and your heart all you want is to see other people blessed, but you're frustrated. I've got to go to work. I don't live in a family that's perfectly functional. I live in a difficult situation. I've got to go to work. I've got this, I've got that. Yeah. But you want to, right? So you're beginning to live the eternal life. So we are given the kind of life to live that we will eternally live. You see why I'm always whittling on about baptism? That you've got to start the journey. You've got to start the journey. Hi Susan, your phone's going off. You've got to start the journey. And you do that by leaving Egypt and getting baptised, and start the journey. And you know, if you want to be baptised, come, come talk to me. It's really possible. Right, so then, you've got to drag yourself to the position where you can look at the servant on the pole and you will be saved. And you can imagine how those people would have felt afterwards that they would have thought, well, the, the venom is gone. I feel normal again. They'd have seen all these other guys dying and they'd have gone back to wherever they were in the encampment, which as I say, the three million people would have been sort of single story dwelling, would have been fairly big gone back, and there's someone else who just got bitten by the snake, someone's still playing around with some stupid uh, cure, some ritual, some abracadabra voodoo stuff. What would they have said to them? They said, look mate, 
Don't do that. Do what I did. And make the journey over there. And have a look. Look at me. I have what you had. But I'm better now. That's what we've got to do. And that's what we pray every day. Should do. That we'll have meetings with people. Who we can help with the gospel. Right, my last point. Okay, Jesus interprets all this, as I've said. He says that the Son of Man, as Moses looked about the servant in the wilderness, even so does the Son of Man be lifted up. So he's saying that when I'm lifted up on the cross, when that pole went up, that tree trunk went up, and was banged into the ground with Jesus on it, hands above his head, that was like the servant lifted up in the wilderness. And then he says the light has come into the world. And you may think, well, what's that got to do? Out of context. Problem is, we think light means a light bulb and you turn the switch on and hey, you've got light. They obviously didn't have electricity or light bulbs in the world. For them, a light was a torch. You know what I mean by a torch? A bit of uh, wood with a burning fire on the end of it. That's what they understood to be a light. Give me a light. Didn't mean like that. Here, have you got a light? It was a piece of wood with a burning fire on it. Do you see the connection? He says, I am like the serpent that was lifted up on the pole. I am the light or the torch of the world. See the connection of ideas? It's a piece of wood with a serpent on it, with Jesus on it, cross. I am the light, I'm the torch. Again, piece of wood, fire on it. The fire, the light, Jesus crucified. And in the, it's in the light of him there that we see everything. If you suffer in your life that suddenly there's a crisis, suddenly you're facing death itself, your mate dies, you know, your mum gets cancer, whatever it is, we see all that in the light. You see everything in the light of him crucified. That the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That this happened, as I keep saying, on a day in April, on a Friday afternoon, on a hill outside Jerusalem, 2,000 whatever years ago. This really happened. That he was lifted up on the path. And he is the torch, the light of the world. And he says... Everyone that does evil hates the light and won't come to the light because his companions' works should be improved. He that does the truth comes to the light of the torch that his works may be revealed. They've been done in God. So we see the connection between self-examination and the cross of Jesus. It's so hard to know yourself, to examine yourself. You know, what are your motives? What are my motives? Is that a sin or not a sin? Very hard to examine yourself. Until you imagine him crucified and you standing in front of him in the light of that torch, that burning fire and everything else is darkness. There you know yourself. There you see everything in its right image, proportion and picture. So that's what we're going to do now. Paul says, let a man or woman examine themselves and so let a meat of that bread and drink of that. And that's what we're going to do. So, let's give thanks for the uh, bread that represents the body of Jesus. We are here in the presence of Jesus crucified. Yeah, this is real. 
He is in heaven. He looks down on us. Looks, yeah, guys, you, you don't know what I went through, but well done for trying. Well done for trying. And you look at him. In one sense, it is so simple. You look at him there in faith, and you will be saved. It's as simple, actually, as that. It's actually made it difficult. That if you recognize, look, I've got a venom in me. I'm going to snake back. I'm going to die. But I look to him. I'm going to live forever. Even if your life, in this life, is C-R-A-P in very big letters. But you've got eternity in front of you. Eternity. You know, what is this life? Even if you cough and hack your life for 80, 90 years, if you're most unfortunate in this world, this is a millimeter compared to the eternal long line of God's kingdom. Really. Wherever, now, I've got that. It's wonderful. Right, let's give thanks to the bread. Um, Mark, we love you, Aussie accent, mate, so could we, uh, can we, can we give a thanks and Thanks, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we so thank you for sending Jesus into our lives. Uh, if anyone else is here like me, then I too have also thought, why have I been brought into this dumb life? Like, where is it all? It's all pointless. But the Lord Jesus has come into my life and into our lives. And he has been a light to us to show that indeed you really do love us and you do really want us to bring, to bring us to that in life eternal. And the Lord Jesus gave himself on the cross, lifted up, to make us realise that with absolute certainty. Otherwise he wouldn't have given his life in the way that he did if he didn't believe that. So we look to him in absolute faith and confidence and trust in your love because he gave his life so that we might be saved. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, right, sing Cindy's up front. Would you thanks for the coming? Dear Father, we thank you for your son, for Jesus, who lived for us and brought out his blood for us and gave his life every day for us. And we pray, Father, that you'll give us the strength to remember him each day. And to give our lives for each other and, and for you. We thank you, Father, for the hope we have of living forever in, in your kingdom. Jesus. Amen. Let's just give thanks to the food. Um, Sean, would you like to give thanks to the food? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the food that is coming for us today. Bless the week ahead. Bless the fruit of the vine that you have provided for us. And we'd like to uh, thank uh, Duncan for all his work this week and his family out in Ukraine. And uh, we bless your name, Lord, every day. We thank you, Jesus, every day for what you have done for us, for the sacrifices you have made so we, Lord, can live through your name. Help us to be better, Lord. Help us to be grateful. Help us to live each day through you, Lord, through your name, through your work. In your name, Jesus, all the people in here and on God's kingdom say amen. Thank you.